some of the works of these uh, philosophers were accessible to a good reader. And therein lies an, an enormous change that occurs in the 18th century, where the books of these sorts of what we call major thinkers are available. They're often available through newspapers, for example. You have the appearance of the daily newspaper in the major urban centers of Europe. And you could go to a cafe, and for free, you could get one of these newspapers tied to a chain so you didn't take it away. And all of this makes print culture and public space and civil society, it all starts blending in to create a space that is not the church, it's not your family, it's neutral, and you can fill it with your own ideas and the conversation with all your friends, etc. And that's where I'd like to find the people who are part of what I call the secular enlightenment. Welcome back to the New Books and Intellectual History channel of the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the reviews editor at Make a Literary Magazine. I'm talking today with Professor Margaret Jacob. Professor Jacob, who specializes in the history of science and intellectual history, is a distinguished professor of research in UCLA's history department. Professor Jacob's previous books have included The Radical Enlightenment, Pantheists, Freemasons, and Republicans, The Enlightenment, A Brief History with Documents, Clandestine Philosophy, New Studies on Subversive Manuscripts in Early Modern Europe, 1620 to 1823, and The Origins of Freemasonry, Facts and Fictions, among others. Professor Jacobs' most recent book, and the book under discussion today, is 2019's The Secular Enlightenment, published by Princeton University Press. It is a panoramic account of the radical ways that life began to change for ordinary people in the age of Locke, Voltaire, and Rousseau. Welcome, Professor Jacob, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I was wondering if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself, both your training and the focus of your work. Well, I I went to um, graduate school in the 1960s. And at that time, the main topic that so many of us were focused on was what happened in Germany. That seemed to be the burning issue that graduate students who were going to get their degree in history would want to concentrate upon. But in the course of all that, I developed a quite intense interest in the 17th century in England and then in the Dutch Republic. Uh, I was a student of distinguished historian of science, uh, Henry Gerlach, and I was fascinated by Isaac Newton, as were we all. And so Germany kind of bled off into Britain and the Dutch Republic, 
and the 18th, 17th and 18th centuries. And I started out first with a study of John Toland, who was a, uh, in his lifetime, he died in 1722. He, he was um, notorious. I mean, he was famous on both sides of the English Channel. A free thinker, a deist, who is widely credited with being the first person to use the word pantheist in the English language. And so I went on from there. The Enlightenment sort of kept coming back. But I also worked extensively on the Newtonian tradition, the way in which it was applied to industrial settings. So one half of my work would be in the history of science on Newtonianism. The other half, you could say, is in intellectual history with particular attention to the 18th century. So your book is about the Enlightenment or to be more specific about one enlightenment, the European secular enlightenment. Before we dive into that subject, I was hoping we could set the stage with a brief overview of what came before it. Uh, Most generally, and I stress superficially, there was a golden age in ancient Greece, then a millennia of ignorance and superstition, and then from the 13th through, say, the 16th century, there was the Renaissance in Europe, although even here, many things carried over from the medieval period, which brings us to the doorstep of the Enlightenment. Uh, This is obviously a wildly superficial survey that ignores the last half century of revisionist scholarship. That said, perhaps it is a place to begin, if only because it is probably the closest to a general picture that many people have. Can you possibly summarize European thought and life before the Enlightenment? so that when we get to the Enlightenment, we can see its innovations in relief? Well, the one element that I would stress above all else is the importance of religion from the Middle Ages onward. Religion as a system of belief and practice, and also as a serious area for inquiry in the universities of Europe. Uh, All the universities were clerically controlled, whether Protestant or Catholic. The other part of the story of religion in European history is, of course, religious conflict. And the century before the Enlightenment, indeed, religion is at the heart of what goes wrong, if you want to use that term, in the century before the Enlightenment. And it is a period of intense religious controversy and conflict warfare between Catholics and Protestants and between uh, the the Catholic Church and the various nation states that allied with it versus the Protestant countries. There are various shock waves that go on in this period. I would lay particular emphasis upon two of them. The first is the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685. Protestants in France had enjoyed a degree of religious toleration. Nobody persecuted them in the period, the hundred years or so before the revocation. Then in 1685, Louis XIV decided that he had to have a state that was pure in religion, that it, it had one king and one faith. And that, of course, would be Catholicism. And so suddenly, in 1685, French Protestants were declared illegal. Now, what did that mean? Well, 
it meant you had to convert back to Catholicism or you had to leave the country. But you couldn't leave the country because that wasn't legal. So you were really forced to find a way to escape or you were wound up in prison if you wouldn't make the conversion. So you have an exodus from France of, well, the estimates vary enormously, but the sort of going rate we think is about 150,000 Protestants who went to Berlin because the German king wanted their skills. They went to the Dutch Republic. They went to England, to London in particular. They also went to places like Staten Island. There were Huguenot, Huguenot is the other word for French Protestants. There were Huguenot settlements all over the East Coast, particularly in the New York area, going all the way up the Hudson as far as Albany. And these were these were hotbeds of religious dissatisfaction. These are people who were thrown out of their kingdom, forced to flee. In some cases, they had to leave their children behind. So there was a sort of frantic quality to all of this and a deep anger. Of the 150,000 or so refugees, probably 20% were literate. And within that, another 10% highly literate. And what did these people do? They immediately took up their pens and their printing presses, and they set up journals, they published pamphlets, they began a campaign to show how awful the King of France and the Catholic Church were. So I, you, you sort of, in retrospect, you ask yourself, what did Louis XIV think was going to happen? He threw all these people out of his kingdom, many of them highly literate, many of them deeply angry. He was going to set up a firestorm of propaganda against himself and the church, of course. And it's in that propaganda that we locate some of the earliest, what I would call clandestine manuscripts, clandestine literature, that was in its time outrageous. And some of it is in our time outrageous. So where you have this late 17th century shockwave that goes through Protestant Europe, you see the beginnings of the Enlightenment. And the characteristics that you find there are, first of all, a growing conviction that absolute monarchy, it's a system of government where the monarch and his court control all of structures of government, that that system is going to be inherently corrupt, or at least corrupting, and it's going to persecute people. Why would it not? Nobody, there's nobody around to oppose it. So there's a growing sense among Protestants in general in Europe, that what they want to find is another form of government that will be fairer, that will be more tolerant. And of course, they look to England with its act of toleration that granted a limited religious toleration to all English Protestants, and of course, to the Dutch Republic where there was no official act of toleration, but where a considerable degree of religious toleration could be seen on the ground. The other thing about the Dutch Republic that's so important in this period is that the majority, imagine this, the majority of books produced in Europe in the year 1700 
come out of the Dutch Republic with its population of less than 2 million people. So these are all ingredients that go into making for the tinderbox where the Enlightenment begins to spark. My my mother's maiden name is is Guinan, uh-huh. and her family's from Ireland. And we think we think that uh, Guinan maybe is Guinan, and that her ancestors were French Huguenots who fled France during the, this time. Yeah, it could very well be. Uh, my mother's um, maiden name was O'Reilly, and she was born in Ireland, but she was born in Northern Ireland, where Catholics were discriminated against in housing and jobs all sorts of ways. And so she had a very visceral sense of what religious persecution was like. And her understanding of the world informed mine, to be sure. So your last answer, I would say, touched on some of the, some of the political, but there were other, other motivations for the Enlightenment, and you cover many of these in your book. The discovery of the new world, the telescope and the microscope, Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, Newton, and the rise of modern science, uh, the Protestant Reformation, which is, of course, tied to the French Huguenots, the printing press, the rise of cities and cosmopolitanism, increases in literacy, uh, an enormous storm of change was happening that helped coalesce into what we know as the Enlightenment. I've even heard, I don't know how if you take these with much credence or not, but I've heard theories that caffeine was introduced into Europe shortly before the Enlightenment, and maybe the Enlightenment is uh, simply the product of caffeine. But if, if I were to ask you to expand a little bit on that, what are some of the more intellectual or some of the more general abstract influences that led into the Enlightenment? Well, undeniably, the new science, uh, the science of Bacon, Descartes, and Newton is absolutely fundamental. And what the new science does is systematically destroy the assumptions built into Aristotle's or scholasticism's understanding of the world. And scholasticism is tied up, again, with Catholicism. So you can't separate the new science from this general move away from Catholic thought, Catholic belief. And the other thing that I I always say to my students is, imagine the impact if we really found knowable, real life somewhere else in the solar system. Now, if that happens in our time, it would probably happen rather quickly, within a year or two or three. And the change would be dramatic. Imagine something similar, but happening gradually in Europe, where beginning in the late 16th century, unto let's, let's go to 1750, and say that what happens is in that 100 years or more, Europeans discover all of the peoples of the world. They don't know much that's accurate about them, but they know that they're there. They even have engravings and pictures that were taken in the New World by travelers who were able to describe the ceremonies and customs of the peoples of of what we today call Mexico or Virginia. 
And they were not European in any way, shape, or form. And they were remarkably different. And so Europeans had to come to terms with what, who are these people? What do they mean? And we see this famously in the writings of Montaigne. Yes. Yes, indeed. And we also see it in um, all the major thinkers of the Enlightenment are thinking to some degree or another about the so-called savage peoples. The assumption was it almost uniformly that the peoples of the New World, unlike the Chinese, there was a big distinction made where the Chinese were seen to have this very old, very established civilization that could be understood in European terms. The peoples of the New World were seen to be savages. We might think that that was prejudicial. It was, but that was the best that most people could come up with. Well, what did this mean? They're obviously human. So does that mean that they're at a kind of a different level of civilization? And is it that their practices are the root practices that all peoples have as a foundation of their belief system and their governmental system, etc.? Do you think that this right here is crucial to the origin of kind of the social contract speculations that you find in Hobbes and Locke and others and Rousseau? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, the ability to imagine what was it like at the very beginning? How did people coming together for the first time, how did they form government? And the ability to even conceptualize such a moment is very much tied in with the ability to imagine the peoples of the new world. I would also imagine among religiously minded figures, as we perhaps generally find in the lead up to the Enlightenment, that there was a sense of question as to whether these people had been neglected because they they had never been introduced to the so-called you know word of God. Was there speculation around that? How come these people had been left out? Yes. Yes. Tremendous speculation. And um, it broke down, as you can imagine, by people thinking, well, the only thing to do is people who are so backward is to enslave them and force them to accept the, the truths of Christianity. But there were more liberal and, and um, enlightened thinkers who said, no, no, we have to try to understand. We have to come to terms. And so you, you get all of these variations in trying to wrap one's mind around a people whom you've never seen, because only the travelers had actually seen them, but about whom you read. And the number of books went up exponentially that t- talked about the travels of people who had seen and what they had seen and the shocking things that they'd seen and the very human things they'd seen. All of this was a cauldron for brewing up a new understanding of humankind. Is there any sense in which the technology of printing made an advancement in the years before the Enlightenment, or is the exponential increase in literature less a factor of the the technology in printing and more uh, of the desire to learn? I know you have a wonderful quote in your book 
from uh, uh, 1727, the Boston Journal Proteus Echo, that speaks of the curiosity of, quote, all mankind, which burns with an unquenchable ardor after knowledge. That, to me, seems to encapsulate much about the Enlightenment. So I was wondering, where does that come from? Where does that unquenchable ardor after knowledge, that rings true of ancient Greece, I would say, perhaps? Of the Renaissance? Although that is maybe an unquenchable ardor for the wisdom of the ancients. But where does that unquenchable ardor after knowledge come from? That Perhaps that is new. I'm not so sure that it's it's new. I, I think it's part of the human condition. I think what is new in the 18th century, late 17th century, is the ability to satisfy that curiosity. And there the printing press is critically important. The other thing I would emphasize about the printing press is, first of all, the, that it could produce books that were incredibly elegant and expensive and lavish. And it could also produce cheap pamphlets that you could get for a penny or two. So there's this incredibly wide range of literature that comes available. And the other part of the puzzle in the importance of printing that we sometimes forget about is the importance of engraving. If you look at Descartes' Discourse on Method, one of the most important things in that book is the way Descartes can illustrate what he means when he talks about pain, for example, going from the fingertips up into the brain, and he has a child putting its hand in a fire and feeling this pain. The importance of the engravings also about the peoples of the New World that depicted them well, in some cases, as eating other people and cannibalism and so forth. And this, of course, made people curious. It repelled people, but it also made them want to see more. Also diverse species, right? I think of Durer's, I think it's a woodcut of the rhinoceros and other animal types that no one in Europe had ever seen before. Right, exactly. Yes, very important. So it's not just print, it's also pictures that could be reproduced cheaply. I mean, engravings, once you've done the the plate, you can put these through hundreds and hundreds of copies. And all of that fed into the curiosity of humankind. And then not least, because you have these religious hatreds that are occupying much of Europe, you can have a huge pamphlet literature where you attack, Catholics attack Protestants, Protestants attack Catholics, both attack the Jews and the Muslims. And there, there, there was just an endless um, array of arguments to be put forward for or against one or another religion. I think when many people think about early printing, they think about, uh, of course, the Gutenberg Bible, which I'm sure was a, an immensely time-consuming and expensive process. And perhaps they also think about the pamphlets. Mm-hmm. Uh, Martin Luther, I think um, Durer was involved with that. But I don't know if they think so much about those early inexpensive volumes. I believe, and 
correct me if I'm mistaken, but I believe the, the italic font that we use was actually developed in Venice during the Renaissance for the purpose that it was much smaller than the regular font. And it was used in the production of lower cost, um, sort of almost mass paperback volumes. Hmm. No, I didn't know that. That's interesting. One of the most famous historians of the previous generation, Elizabeth Eisenstein, wrote a massive two-volume work called The Printing Press as an Agent of Change. It just remains one of the true observations historically that will hold out now for many decades to come, I'm sure. Uh, While we're talking about printing press and texts, I thought we could maybe take a look at two representative texts that you discuss on numerous occasions in your book. One is Bernard Picard's Religious Ceremonies and Customs of All the Peoples of the World. Uh, Those Mm -hmm. came out between 1723 and 1743. Uh, And Herder's writings. I refer in particular to Herder's Meditations on Civilizations, which you note, quote, display no commitments to European superiority, but rather a willingness to see all peoples as capable of intellectual creativity. Could you speak about these two volumes and what was so representative of them for the Enlightenment and also what was so radical about them? With pleasure. Uh, Bernard Picard, who was the engraver of the ceremonies and religious customs of all the peoples of the world, was after Hogarth, the most famous, most important engraver of the 18th century. Uh, Immensely talented. And he got together with Jean-Frédéric Bernard And between them, they produced seven folio volumes. Now, a folio volume, I'm trying to think of. If you took your your big computer screen and you turned it over so that it was more like a book, a vertically situated rectangle, that's the size of a folio volume. So these books were immensely heavy, beautifully illustrated, and expensive. In libraries, some of these would be literally chained, correct, to prevent them from being stolen. Yes, indeed. No, it wasn't obscure because it was so beautiful and so expensive that it was widely commented upon. And it was bought a lot. So, that, for example, we went into the records of the Bank of England for... 1724, 25, 26, and we discovered that Bernard Picard had deposited several thousand pounds into the bank, and this was his half of the profits from these remarkable books. What they attempted to do was to show the religious customs of all the peoples of the world, then all the known peoples of the world, with an even hand to say, look, they have marriage, they have death, they have, they even have human sacrifice, they have burial. They, all the, these customs are seen as simply part of the human condition. The vision is, is almost anthropological. Now, this leads on to, two generations later, someone like Herder, who can look at humankind and say, well, for example, the origin of language lies in random sounds made by people who are just encountering one another. There's nothing inherent that a language should be this way or that way. There's nobody in charge of the beginnings of a language. It comes out of what people 
spoke, what they, what they grunted at one another that became language. So hence, language is a social, cultural construction. It doesn't have some kind of inherent soul. It is just the result of human communication. And Herder therefore argued that all the peoples of the world have language and all the peoples of the world have culture and they're on a plane. There's nobody superior there's nobody to be taken more seriously than somebody else. And this, this is an enormous step forward in trying to create a European mindset that is open to the rest of the world. Also sounds like the concept of uh, evolution is incipient in there. The idea that languages started out perhaps with grunts or other more primal sounds and then over time evolved into these higher more abstract languages that we use today yes yes you you, yes you could think that way about it absolutely miriam webster defines secular as of or relating to the worldly concerns while this is by no means to imply that secular is synonymous with materialism or atheism Still, the emergence in Europe of spaces that were de-secularized is a step in that direction, uh, as did not go unnoticed at the time. Can you talk to us about the emergence of secular spaces and some of the ways that secularization did escalate to something resembling materialism? Perhaps we can begin with Constantine Huygens Jr. and his complete absence of reverence for religion or religious belief, in your words. Uh, then touch on the Baron de Olbach's system of nature? Oh, that's a tall order. <laughs> um, let me just back up here and say when the first usages of the term secular refer simply to time, worldly time. So, for instance, the church defined secular music as music occurring outside of the church's, the building, outside the structure, out in space, just out there. That's secular music. Now, you can go on from there to say that space outside of the churches becomes increasingly filled in the course of the 17th century as cities grow. You can't, I think, separate the notion of there being a secular time or a secular place from the urban. It doesn't have to be a big urban, but it's not going to be a village. And so the, the cities are places where people, oh, people can come and go as they please. And there are non-religious spaces where they can assemble and discuss and congregate. And that's your coffee house, perhaps, where they can get high on caffeine. And these spaces are increasingly important in the course of the 18th century. For one thing, they're very hard to police. And one of the things that an absolute monarchy has to do is to keep tabs on what the population is up to. And that meant, in the French case, for example, which we know the best, having spies that sat in cafes and coffee houses and just listened to what was being said. These are, these are remarkable resources, as you can imagine, for the historian. 
It's like having your own personal anthropologist off in a cafe in the middle of Paris in 1750. And we still have, we, we have records of the oh, transcripts yes. that those spies yeah. would have turned over? Yes, we do. We hmm. have the handwritten notes. And most of them are sitting in the, at the library called Arsenal. And they were originally, many of them, housed in the archives of the Bastille. Well, when the Bastille came crashing down, those archives had to go somewhere. And the French created a library that is ha- houses these. And they are gold mines. Now, most of the spying was done in cafes where prominent people could be seen, and particular ambassadors, consular figures, foreigners. You, you wanted to be sure you knew what those folk were up to. Also, in the course of this, you would send somebody in to watch if strange ceremonies and customs were going on, and you wanted to know what was that all about. And these reports, these spy reports, are absolutely invaluable resources. Unfortunately, they don't exist for many that many countries. The French ones are the most famous because they're accessible. I'm sure you can find things like that in the Vatican archives. You probably can find them also in the archives of the Spanish monarchy. I have not attempted to use those. But, for example, in the, in the Dutch Republic, there's really nothing quite like it. Are the French records accessible as a result of the revolution? So post-revolution, yes. yes. the revolutionaries are the ones that decided to make public these documents of the monarchy? Well, it, didn't, it wasn't actually that clear-cut. Once the Bastille was uh, destroyed, all this stuff was sitting around. Now, some people tried to uh, bring out is salacious um, gossip uh, based on the spy reports. But mostly these were just archives that had to be put somewhere. Mm-hmm. Eventually, uh, they were gathered together and put into a public library, which sits to this day on the banks of the Seine. So that gets us into the secular space. But can you talk to us a little bit about Constantine Huygens Jr. and then maybe maybe de Holbach? Yes. I mean, one of the things about Huygens that makes makes him interesting is that his diaries were not published at all in his lifetime. And those are always useful because they're they're private. You know, he did not write them so that everybody would know what he was thinking. And the thing that's so striking about them to a historian, and now this is somebody who was involved in really high government circles. He was active in the court of William III, who became the King of England as a result of the revolution of 1688-89. Huygens, and, and we know the contents of Huygens' library, and that's the other important thing. Huygens was a military man. He had friends in high places. He had many books in his library that were religious he went to church. We know that because he often went with William the the Third. He never says a prayer in his diaries. He never um, talks about if he's going to go to heaven or hell, and he's worried about it. It all just seems to pass over him, rather the way a person we might know in our own lives, maybe our own lives themselves, the way we pass through the world without thinking much at all about a future life, a life outside of time, separate from time. 
And when you find a, a record like that from the late 17th, early 18th centuries, you think, wow, that's unusual. And such records are increasingly commonplace in the 18th century, where you can find the lives of people who are living their lives. They may go to church. They may not go to church. Uh, they may read a newspaper on Sundays rather than going to church. But they don't talk or think much about an afterlife or whether they've sinned or whether they've done well or, you know, they just do what they have to do to get by and they don't think much about the divine or about the, the spiritual. And that's, that's the kind of mind wherein the secular can abide. And is, I think perhaps Holbach is slightly after, but fairly quickly you go from the absence of strong religious feelings towards something that seems to resemble atheism. That, that was, um, I would imagine that was fairly shocking at the time. I, I don't want to say it was unprecedented in the history of human thought, but probably in Europe that was considered quite radical. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dolbach was absolutely shocking. It has to be said, though, that parts of his system of nature are direct translations from the English text of John Toland, the man who first invented the term pantheist. There's a direct link between Toland and Dolbach, and the link is the new science. Once you can begin to think about matter in motion, as being the cause of change. Change occurs because bodies are in collision. There's no change if no collision occurs. You, you are beginning to think in ways that would be called very quickly atheism or materialism. And in a sense, materialism is like the metaphysics of the secular. Most people don't care about metaphysics. They don't know about it. They don't want to know about it. But Tolan and Dolbach and people like them are metaphysicians of this new order, this new secular order. And they are the metaph metaphysicians of what we call the radical strain of the Enlightenment. The thinking is if a projectile or if a planet in orbit strictly follows the laws of Newton, then perhaps the constituent atoms, they didn't have a rigorous understanding of the atomic hypothesis at the time, but essentially so may we. we if, if we get far enough into the science and the mathematics, it may be possible to discern that we are also deterministic systems just as a projectile or a solar system are. Is that, is that correct? That's, and that's Dolmach's philosophy, his system of nature, lays that out for how human beings are basically nothing but matter in motion. And this was a, a position that Tolan had staked out in 1704. That's more than 50 years earlier than Dolbach. And we know that Dolbach knew Tolan's writings because uh, indeed, one of my first papers in graduate school was to discover, much, much to my amazement, that he plagiarized vast bits out of Tolan and put them in the system of nature. Hmm. And he, he was strongly influenced by the writings of Newton and, and the ideas of Newton. 
Yes. Yes. This, this, remember, Newton um, explained to the world that gravitation, universal gravitation, which is an immaterial force, but it's a force, and it operates from the center of a body to another center of a body. Thus, it was not. It didn't require rocket science to say, as Tolan says, "Well, the, the motion is inherent in matter. It's right in in the matter, and so we don't need a, an outside force, the divine." being the usual source of all change in the world, we just need matter in motion. And if this operates between the planets, and then it can operate in all sorts of ways that imply a universe that governs itself. And speaking of the secularization of the world, I believe Newton's law of gravitation, Kepler had begun to understand the laws underlying the behavior of the planets in orbit, and Galileo had looked through his telescope and seen that the, uh, the sun has sunspots and um, that Venus orbits the sun and certain things. But Newton's law of gravitation was the first law, to my understanding, that it was an actual causal law, mechanistic law that applies on Earth as well as in heaven. The same law that kept the moon and, and indeed ourselves bound to the earth was the law that kept Mars and Jupiter and the earth in orbit around the sun. And before that, in the Aristotelian understanding, the, the heavens were distinct and perfect and the earth was corrupt and uh, time bound. And so that could also be a, a secularizing force that suddenly the laws on the earth are reaching out into the heavens and the the stuff of the heavens is reaching down into the earth. Very well said. I, I think it's it's easy in discussions of the Enlightenment to to talk a lot about the the High Enlightenment. This is Voltaire, Diderot, Hume, Mozart, but they were exceptional individuals, uh, and many most people, in fact, were were not thinking the same thoughts as those. In your book, you talk about, quote, the lesser mortals, the ordinary, uh, literate, reasonably educated 18th century people we may reasonably describe as enlightened. So could you, to the degree possible um, and concisely, could you give us a quick tour of the worldview of maybe the, I, I think the, the grand thinkers we've covered enough, but maybe of the peasant as well as the educated gentleman or lady of the Enlightenment. What was the peasant at the time? Were they being impacted by the Enlightenment to what degree? And also the educated uh, but non-philosoph? Oh, that's, that's, that's really difficult. Um, first of all, the majority of the peasantry of Europe was not literate. And if you're not literate, you have a very tentative understanding of all of the kinds of intellectual trajectories that we've been talking about. I think it would be fair to say that the peasant of 18th century Europe has pretty much the same century, decade by decade. There is a, a slow growth of literacy. 
throughout Western Europe, not Eastern, but in Western Europe, and that would have impacted some of the rural parts of Europe. I think that the person we want to try to get at in terms of being influenced by the Enlightenment is someone who is literate, but who almost certainly did not go to university, but who has um, the ability to see and be seen, to go to coffee houses, um, cafes, to join Freemasonry, to have a, a, a knowledge of what's going on in the world, and who could read enough to read someone like Voltaire, who's very entertaining and engaging. Um, Dolbach is a different story. I mean, that's pretty heavy going. But some of the works of these uh, philosophers were accessible to a good reader. And therein lies um, an, an enormous change that occurs in the 18th century, where the books of these sorts of what we call major thinkers are available. They're often available through newspapers, for example. You, you have the appearance of the daily newspaper in the major urban centers of Europe. And you could go to a cafe and for free, you could get one of these newspapers tied to a chain so you didn't take it away. And all of this makes print culture and public space and civil society, it all starts blending in to create a space that is not the church, it's not your family, it's neutral, and you can fill it with your own ideas and the conversation with all your friends, etc. And that's where I'd like to find the people who are part of what I call the secular enlightenment. I mean, various people have said to me, when you say secular enlightenment, don't you just mean the enlightenment? Well, yes, I do. But I, I write it in part to distinguish there's been a tendency in the historical writing of the last 50 years to say, oh, well, there was a religious enlightenment and there were enlightened Jews and there were enlightened Catholics and there were enlightened Protestants. And yes, this is true, but this is not the significant part of 18th century thought. It's interesting in your book, and this ties us back a little bit to the concept of secular time, but the and also to Huygens, although I can't remember if this is specifically true about Huygens, those journals that we find where people start keeping track of literally like the minutes, the minutes when meetings are happening. And yes. I get the impression from your book that that hadn't really happened before, where you'll see someone's itinerary and it'll say, 10 o'clock, I met with some per this person, 1130, I met with this person. So the idea of also, I, th I think your book literally uses the term time management, which of course is... Uh, Anytime you go to the, the airport or there's all these self-help books talking about time management, but it's, right. it's fascinating to think that those ideas start to enter into the discussion around this time. And as the secular is sort of leaving the, the minutiae, the, the crevices of people's lives, maybe it's that it's being stuffed out by just too much of the, of the everyday world with all these meetings and having to keep, to keep track of the minutes minute-by-minute time scheduling? Uh, yes, uh, in the sense that well, there's, there's a bunch of things going on here. One of them is the growth in the, the quantity of timekeeping 
devices that are available in the courts of the 18th century. Every place had a church clock, you know, sat on the tower of the church. Uh, clubs and pubs and whatnot had clock pieces, time pieces in them. But And you also have homes where you have wall clocks. But one of the things that's happening in the 18th century is the appearance of the pocket watch. And if you sit down, as I did one summer, and go through as many diaries as I could find in the British Library, you begin to see a pattern. In 1700, I'd say, the vast majority of people will say, my daughter was born this morning, and we took her to church yesterday for the first time. In the middle of the 18th century, you begin to see, my daughter was born at 8 o'clock in the morning. My son came home at 4 o'clock. And then you begin to see people saying, I got up at 7, I shaved at 7.30, I took a walk, I went and visited my friend, and I came home at 11.30. And you think, wow, that I could have written that diary, you know. And, and that sort of time management, it's happening because First of all, you can tell the time. You've got something that tells you what time it is. But also you have now a kind of awareness of time that is fed by the technology, but it's also, I think, fed by what I would call a secular impulse, a desire to keep track of what you're doing with time, in time, in order to use time effectively. Talk to us about clandestine literature, uh, also known as forbidden books. This Mm -hmm. is a recurring topic in your book. When you are speaking about clandestine literature, you're often speaking of pornography. Has the term pornography always referred to what today we think of as pornography, or was it more of a catch-all term that referred to everything uh, forbidden? And um, what was the role of clandestine literature in the Age of the Enlightenment? First of all, the clandestine literature is very much a byproduct of hostility toward the clergy and the aristocracy, the court. Some of the earliest clandestine literature we have, and it really dates from the mid-17th century onward, is set up as narrative stories about people behaving badly in court in church, etc. And one of the ways they begin to behave badly is doing things that can only be described as pornographic. And in the, the earliest of these books, and they're all published anonymously, nobody knows who's behind them. It, the government spent tons of money trying to find out who published such and such. The other thing that's going on here is the engravings. So you have these books that describe the sexual act, for example, between men, between a man and a woman, between two women, and to do this with an engraving in case you left anything to your imagination. This is what is the earliest pornography, and it remains today at the core of pornography. Now, the viciousness and um, violence and whatnot has also intruded into the genre in the 20th century, but it does not begin as violence. It begins as, well, to use the catch-all phrase that one of my students said, um, pornographic books are books you read with one hand, 
<laughs> it was a very naughty thing to say, but it was good. It's true. True then, true now. Could you tell us a little bit about the widow Stockdorf? Oh, Lord heavens. Widow Stockdorf. She was a wonderful discovery. Of all of them, one of the most fascinating characters in your entire history. <laughs> Again, she's in the Bastille archives because they have an arsenal, the bibliotheque arsenal. They have the records of the the prison in the Bas- of the Bastille where people were sent for doing all kinds of things. And one of the things you could get caught doing was buying and selling bad books, naughty books, outrageous books. And the widow of Stockdorf uh, migrated all the way from Alsace, from Strasbourg. She was actually a German speaker uh, in the company of two abbés. Uh, so these are the abbés are a secular form of clergy. And she she's a book dealer has a library, a libraire. She's a bookseller in Strasbourg. She also sells around Europe. She has big clientele in Maastricht at the southern tail of the Dutch Republic. She goes to Paris with a shopping list and her two abbés. And what is she looking for? She is looking for every book that you could put on a list of bad books, naughty books, books the authorities are trying to get their hands on. And if you didn't know what these books were, if you came at this as a novice and you, all you found were the records of the intake interview and the imprisonment and the, of the Abbe Stockdorf, you would find a list that conforms, that was made in what she's doing. She's doing this in 1771, as I recall. She's making a list that conforms to lists that we've assembled in the last 30 years. From scratch. Well, the widow of Stockdorf already had these books on her radar, and she was in Paris to buy and sell and collect. And of course, they nabbed her, they caught her, and they put her in prison. She was there for two years. And they, of course, confiscated all her letters that she sent home to her children who were taking care of the shop. Uh, And then they translated them out of the original German into French. So you could read them. And there they are in this neat big folder called the Widow Stockdorf. And it was, it's like a, a microcosm of what could be bought in Paris in the 1770s. And this stuff was, by any account, some of the most outrageous literature known to humankind. Let me give you an example of one of the really most outrageous books that she was looking for that she went and bought. And when I tell my students about this book, I always preface what I'm going to say by saying, look, this is offensive. This was meant to be offensive. So try not to be offended. It was a book called The Treatise on the Three Impostors. And the three impostors were Jesus, Moses, and Mohammed. And it was a long discussion of what people thought about the imposture of these three men. I found who did this when I was in the library in the Dutch Republic back in the 1970s and published about it in a book called The Radical Enlightenment. Now, this book was produced in the second decade of the 18th century. There's Stockdorf in 1771-72 looking out for it, trying to get a copy of it. Why? Because stuff like that sold. And she clearly had built her business around bad books. 
Right. I was just going to ask about that. So obviously the question of the motivation of the author or where where is the author coming from comes up. But also, as I get the impression from your book that this was, considering a book that it was that was on the black market, this was a, a quite quite um well selling in demand book. So, was the average reader were they sympathetic with the book or were they just intrigued by it? How, how do we understand the audience for a book like that? Well, the, these these are the big questions that people who work on clandestine literature ask all the time. We're always trying to find who's reading this stuff. How much is it selling for? Is there a network? Can we piece this together? And the one thing we know, we're fairly certain, and this was work done, oh gosh, 70 years ago, is that the major thinkers, people like Voltaire and Diderot and um, Doldbach and Herder and so on, they knew this literature. They'd had their hands on these books. Um, the other thing we know from inventories of the major American and European libraries is that this stuff was widely circulated in the sense that you can find a copy at the New York Public Library, probably several copies, the Boston Public Library, the Library of Congress, the British Library, the Royal Library in The Hague, um, the Sorbonne, um, et cetera, et cetera. So this stuff was out there, and people talked about it. But it was dangerous. You could get in a lot of trouble if you were caught having books like that in your home, in your shop, if you were a librarian. Sorry, librarians, you're not a librarian, you're a bookseller. Um, The authorities would confiscate, well, give me an example of how dangerous this stuff could be. The main book peddlers in Spain who made a real serious living by selling this kind of stuff were blind. So when they got caught, if they got caught, the authorities couldn't do anything. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, isn't that amazing? An amazing fact. So that you could get away with with selling this stuff and you, you could look at that cop right in the eye and say, I don't know anything about it. And, and yet, presumably, they had acquired the book and they had priced the book accordingly. So, it's we we can assume that they probably knew what they were what they yeah. were selling, but uh, they had plaus- they had plausible deniability. Absolutely plausible deniability. How does romanticism fit in? You you touch on it a little bit in your book. It seems like maybe you consider it a, a subcurrent within the Enlightenment. Many of the figures that you cover, Rousseau, Herder, Goethe, are also associated with Romanticism. And you have a chapter, uh, uh, my understanding, which comes partially from Isaiah Berlin, is that Romanticism is is really more of a German uh, phenomenon than than a French one. And you do have a chapter on Germany that I think touches on this stuff in terms of the the matter of the German state um, or the matter of the German attempted suppression of free thought. So you, 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 you do kind of touch on romanticism, but not so much explicitly. So I'm curious as to how you think that it fits in. Is it, is it distinct from the Enlightenment, or is it, does it fall within the Enlightenment? 
Well, it's a, it's a complicated question. I mean, the, the Romanticism is everywhere by 1800. It, it's most famous in, in Germany, I suppose, but there's English Romanticism, there's French Romanticism, etc. Um, part of it comes out of the Enlightenment desire to understand human nature and to delve into the the what we would we would call the the person's inner thinking. This is Rousseau's confession confessions were just an, an extraordinary book. No one had written like that before, and that's one of the sources of Romanticism. This this intense interest in the self and and the the emotions that are generated in in the self. The other factor that's so important is the French Revolution in making this turn toward romanticism. Increasingly, after 1789, people who identified with the revolution, who wanted to make it part of their lives, saw that they had to become, as it were, new people. They had to reinvent themselves. And that process of reinventing means looking again inside oneself, the way Rousseau did, and to do this also with a desire to find new sources of self-awareness and hence the, the turn toward nature, and also the repudiation of established authorities to, to go for something that is separate from the people who claim to be in charge and who control thought and who want you to do the right thing and who are generally repressive. So there's a revolt against psychological repression, et cetera. And that is fueled by the French Revolution. So there's a variety of things that are happening here. While the Enlightenment is, I would say, generally thought of in a positive light, uh, it's clear in your book that few, if any, of its main characters come through without you know, some flaw in hindsight. Uh, we find racism, mm-hmm. we find sexism, we find anti-Semitism, Can you talk briefly about the ways that the Enlightenment, uh, just like the Renaissance before it, failed to completely throw off the past, failed to completely liberalize? Well, um, all we need to do is think about our own... Correct, right. ...our own situation at the moment. We have people in authority who are racist and sexist, probably anti-Semitic, although they keep that hidden on the whole. And even, I, I, I will add, even in hindsight, in 50 years from now, our, our leading liberal minds may come to have seemed blind to certain things. But it yes. is true But it is true in the Enlightenment that not just certain populist political leaders or whatever, but some of the leading liberal lights were blind to things that today seem seem fairly striking, just blatant anti-Semitism, sexism, and indeed racism. Not all Enlightenment figures were anti-Semitic or racist to the same degree. So if there's anything there that you think is is worth touching on. I, I think that those flaws are absolutely present throughout the 18th century, but then they're so much with us today right. that it'd be very hard to... Um, trash Voltaire because he definitely said anti-Semitic things, no doubt about it. 
I think one of the one of the things I, I believe in the last four years have taught us is that um, there's no escaping. You have to have people who think their way out of these boxes, and if they don't think, they wind up repeating some of the same horrors that are currently being repeated. So, I mean, remember when I when when I went to graduate school, the nineteen. 60 to 64 to 68, there was not a tenured woman in any major American research university. Not one. Right. Incredible. Not, Harvard, not Princeton, not UCLA, not Berkeley, not Stanford, not one. I was taught by wonderful men. They were terrific teachers. They were great intellects who would openly say to me, this department will never hire a woman. So in in that sense, we learn kind of the same lesson in reading your book as we have uh, recently with political developments, wherein in some ways, uh, compared to the Renaissance, say we saw great, great progress to the Enlightenment. And likewise, from the Enlightenment, in some way, we've seen great progress to the present day. But in other ways, some of our some of our demons um, stay stay true through that entire history. Right. What it, what this should tell us is that we have to all the time be looking out for those demons, and and put them back in whatever bottle they came out of, or dump them down the sewer, or whatever. But just get rid of them as fast as we can because they'll come back. And that is that was despite their blindness in places that was part of the Enlightenment project, correct? I mean, they did have a sense of of liberalism and of pro- progress in terms of social things. So they were, in their, in their own way, in their own time, they were working on this project. They just weren't able to bring it to completion, just as even today we have not been able to bring it to completion. Right. But remember also they had clear um, targets, the, the, all these European countries had aristocracies. You, there was somebody by their dress, their manner, their speech, you could identify as somebody who thought or believed that he or she was better than you. And clergy who were in privileged legal positions as well as moral authorities, etc. In other words, there was people all around you could look at and say, well, do I think this guy's such a big deal? Is he really superior to me? By contrast, I think 50 years from now, for example, I believe people are going to look at us and and find it unimaginable that we actually had people die because they didn't have health insurance. And we'll find that, I believe, completely unimaginable 50 years from now. But that's why we have to think about these inequities as broadly as possible, because we could look back on the 18th century and say, oh, it's easy for them. They could see the aristocracy. They could see the clergy. Yes, but some of them chose not to see it. Right, correct. So there are things we just don't see that someday we will see. And every age has their blind spots. And Ours does too, and there are things that none of us are able to see yet that will, with time, become clear, and it's part of our project, our own enlightenment, to try to find our way to those blind spots. Yes, 
I agree. Professor Jacob, I've already taken up a great deal of your time. To wrap up, is there anything that you're working on now that you would like to share with us? Oh, dear. Well, I'm. it's very difficult right at this very moment because all the libraries are closed in, in Los Angeles. Um, some of the European libraries are now opening, but you have to spend 14 days in quarantine to go use them. So I'm a bit betwixt and between. I'm thinking about doing something on the mental universe of the first British industrialists. They fascinate me. Mm-hmm. So many of them were Unitarians, and I don't know why they're Unitarians. Um, I'm writing a general book with a colleague who's an expert on Latin American Freemasonry, and I'm writing a general book with her just because that's about all you can write now in in our present library situation. So somewhere along the way, I'll, I'll get it all together when I can get back in the library. But thank you for asking. Professor Jacob, uh, your book is a a wonderful introduction to this important and fascinating subject, and I highly recommend it to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for writing it and for your time and insights today. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you. I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Professor Margaret Jacob about her 2019 book, The Secular Enlightenment. It's a wonderful book. If you are interested in the subject matter, whether an expert or a lay reader, I highly recommend it. The theme music for this episode, and for all my episodes, is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Malloy, and you've been listening to the New Books and Intellectual History channel of the New Books Network. See you next time.